0: So I had a, I brought two talks to give tonight, but I had an epiphany and I realized I'm not gonna give either one of those talks. I thought it would be appropriate to talk about something else. So I'm gonna begin with a quote from the Buddha. from the text, and it's a Buddha talking about his own practice, his own process. And he's describing his life, he's describing a little bit what happened to him, how he came to practice. And he said, monks, nuns, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. Remember, the, the Buddha was an Indian prince, very high caste, um, and was being groomed to be the uh, king of, a, it's not exactly a country at that part the point, but a, a kingdom. So monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. And my father even had lotus ponds made in our palace one where red lotuses bloomed and one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. A white, and I'm going to just give some commentary as I read, but his father, and the reason, one reason why his father made the palace so beautiful was because at the Buddha's birth, uh, a seer foretold that the Buddha would either be a great king or a great spiritual teacher and his father wanted him to take over the family business and become a king and he didn't want him to become a spiritual teacher and so one of the ways one of the strategies he used to try to keep the Buddha home right keep the Buddha down on the farm was to make it so beautiful that the Buddha never saw anything bad, any, that there was no difficulty, no suffering, that it was so nice and so beautiful that the Buddha would never want to leave, basically. And um, there's many, many stories about his father, all the things his father did, including having the dead flowers picked uh, at night so the Buddha wouldn't see them in the morning. So he says, my father created these lotus ponds, red lotuses bloomed, white lotuses bloomed, blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. And a white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, from heat, from dust, dirt, and dew. He said, I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. And during the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I did not once come down from that palace. You know, he's an Indian prince and he had what were the the accoutrements of that class, caste, position. And actually, he enjoyed them very much, the Buddha. I don't know if, I've mentioned this before, but if you don't know, the Buddha was quite a hedonist before he went off to seek enlightening. It's said that he tasted every sensual delight possible before he went off to seek awakening. And it's a little aside, but, I mean, we're getting quite aside, but, you know, this is an evening of change, right? Um, It's actually in some Buddhist texts, because the Buddha is considered an archetype. There's there's at least one Buddhist text that suggests that one follows that archetypal example and that we're supposed to taste every sensual delight before we go off to seek enlightenment. So, in case there's anything you missed, you know. So, he had three palaces, and then he writes, Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me, when an untaught, ordinary person, him or herself subject to aging, not beyond aging, sees another who is aged, he or she is horrified humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious to him or herself that he or she too is subject to aging. If I, who am subject to aging, not beyond aging, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is aged, that would not be fitting for me. And as I notice this, The typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. So he posits a question. He's reflecting, he's inquiring, he's looking at something. And he says, When an untaught, ordinary person, subject to aging, not beyond aging, sees another who is aged and is horrified, humiliated, disgusted and oblivious that they too are subject to aging. He's, he points out something that all of us come from. That we have an illusion about age. That we have a reaction to age. That we have an aversion to aging. To the change of aging. And he says, he says and, and he, when he realizes, he looks and he sees, but I am subject to aging, not beyond aging. And so if I were to be horrified, humiliated, disgusted on seeing another person who is aging, that would not be fitting for me. One of the way you might understand the way he's talking about fitting is meaning that it would actually not be true for me. It would not be the truth. And as I noticed this, the typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. And then he continues Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me when an untaught, ordinary person, herself subject to illness, not beyond illness, sees another who is ill. She is horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious to herself that she too is subject to illness. If I, who am subject to illness, not beyond illness, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is ill, that would not be fitting for me. And as I notice this, the healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away. So the intoxication with youth, the intoxication with age, and then he has a third realization. Even though I was endowed with such fortune, total refinement, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me when an untaught, ordinary person, himself subject to death, not beyond death, sees another who is dead, he is horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious to himself that he too is subject to death. If I, who am subject to death, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is dead, that would not be fitting to me, for me. As I notice this, the living person's intoxication with life dropped away. It's a very beautiful teaching of the Buddha. The teaching is about the teaching of intoxication. The intoxication with youth, the intoxication with health, intoxication with life. And I want to be very careful here because it's very easy for us to to mishear what he's saying. He's not saying that one doesn't appreciate youth or enjoy health or love life. He's pointing very specifically at a certain kind of intoxication that we live with. Sometimes the word that's used in uh, Buddhism is delusion or confusion. Here he uses the word intoxication. When we're intoxicated, we're not seeing clearly. We're not seeing things as they are. The mind is deluded by whatever intoxicates it, by whatever inebriates it. Whether it be drugs or alcohol, or in this case, youth, or health, or life, and then toxic what 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 the inebriation um, what the the what the intoxication limits us from seeing. Or what we're we're intoxicated with in each of these, in youth, and in health, and in uh, life, is permanence. The illusion of permanence is what's intoxicating. When we're young, we think we'll be young forever. When we're healthy, we feel like, oh, we'll be healthy forever and even being alive even though we know we're going to die there's some part of us that's a little intoxicated we don't really believe it that we're intoxicated by life itself and then and the idea that there is some kind of permanence and when we're not intoxicated there's sobriety and sobriety is characterized by a clear seeing. And this clear seeing is essential to penetrate the Buddhist teachings. The reason we practice, the reason we sit, the reason we pay attention to our bodies and our hearts and our minds and the various phenomena that appear and disappear over and over again is to begin to see clearly the nature of reality without being intoxicated by it. And so, if you look up the word sober, one of the definitions is to be clear or clear-headed, calm, unruffled, to begin to see things as they are. And I thought it would be appropriate tonight to begin with this teaching of the Buddha about the intoxication of permanence, given that it seemed appropriate here to talk about Anicca tonight, or change. Partly because of the change we're experiencing as a community. This is the first time we've been moved out of our room in this way. And all of a sudden, everything's different. Things change. Human life is not characterized by permanence. It's actually characterized by Change. And so I'd like to speak tonight a bit about Anicca. And the word that I'm using, Anicca, is the Pali word. And, and I'm going to include the, a little context here. There are three words that, that go together. Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. And these are considered the three marks of existence. Sometimes they're called the three characteristics of existence. Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. And they're translated as impermanence or change, Anicca. Um, uh, dissatisfaction. Uh, um, in, in substanti- insubstantiality. um Stress, suffering, dukkha. That there is something inherently uh, uncomfortable in human life. Doesn't say that all of human life is suffering or that everything's bad. But that if you pay attention, you will pay attention to a level, a, a quality of stress. Whether it's just ordinary, everyday, no big deal, common, garden variety, or, or can be very gross, war, earthquakes, also in the same category, dukkha. And the other characteristic is anatta. And anatta is the characteristic, the other intoxication, which is that of self. Anatta means not-self. And so in the Buddhist tradition, these three characteristics, these three marks of existence, impermanence, suffering, and not self, are very important to begin to recognize and understand. And they're important because they support, they're not a goal in and of themselves. They're not exactly, they're, they're, a, they're like a way station or they're important marker to begin to realize, to understand for yourself in your own experience. Because what they do is they set the stage for the heart and mind turning fully towards freedom. When one actually sees these characteristics, one lets go of the intoxication with permanence, with trying to make life perfect, in a way that it can never be made, and trying to remain attached to a separate self or to a sense of self. That's actually, we could say, illusory. And so as we begin to understand and realize and penetrate the three marks of existence, the impact it has on us, is to turn very fully, even more fully, towards seeing the truth of reality beyond those characteristics. And Anicca, or change, is pivotal. The other two actually make total sense as soon as we begin to see impermanence. As soon as we see, which it's pretty obvious, right? Anybody not see that everything is impermanent? I just... Is there anything you can see that's permanent? Okay. So on one hand, this is really obvious. And I'll come back to the less obvious. But um but when we start to see that that everything is in flux, that all of human life is is changing, all everything we know is Transient. Everything we experience is transient. Then we can begin to see one of the... Then the mark of dukkha becomes clear right then and there. Because things are transient, we can't hold on to anything. So that we're going to suffer if we hold on in any way, shape or form that suffering then becomes inherent to human life because we can't keep anything, we can't hold on to anything, we can't fixate anything. Even if we get all our ducks lined up, right? You get the right relationship and the right job and the right place to live, and which is totally encouraged in Buddhism. Do all of that. But even still... We know, we know it's, it's an existential reality that it's going to change, and that's one of the characteristics of dukkha. Even when we're totally happy, there's a subtle existential dukkha because we know things won't stay the same. And then, and then um, the mark of not self also becomes clear in light of the truth of impermanence that if we look if we look very closely here we see that our body's changing all the time from the beginning of life until we die and actually if you've ever sat with a dying body for more than a day or two or three you see that it actually the body continues to change it's continually in a process of change we often think of death as a static moment it's not true I've, I've As part of practice, at one point I was with a body for three days after a person died. And the most striking thing was how much the body kept changing. And if we would sit for three months or a year, we would watch the body continue to change. That the body, the physical form, and really all physical form we know, is characterized by change. Our emotions are characterized by change. As much as we don't want certain feelings, they come. As much as we want certain feelings to stay, they change. You ever notice how if you fall in love with somebody, how great it is, how great it feels? It's like, wow, they're just the best and... I just feel so happy when I'm with them, and I feel so great, and I feel complete, and I feel wonderful. And then it changes. And then it's suffering, right? Because we want it to be like that the whole time, but, but it, we're going against the characteristic of reality that everything changes. So if we actually try to base a relationship on falling in love... Well, we'll fall in love many, many times. But we won't have a relationship because it can't sustain that kind of, quote, falling in love. Relationships need to be able to sustain change. So if we look at our bodies, our hearts, our minds... Everything is changing. Everything's in flux. Where is this permanent sense of self? Where is that self we call me? Where is it? The Buddha would do some very simple practices to point at this. The most simple is to look at the body. Okay, where is the self, he would say? Is it in the fingernails? that who you think you are your fingernails anybody think they're their fingernails let me just see how about your elbow do you think you're your elbow how about your tongue Is that who you are how about your bladder sometimes it feels that way right but (laughs) And what the Buddha would do is he would um, he would begin to break down what we take to be ourself and start to look and see where is this self that we're taking ourself to be? Is it in your lungs? Or is it in your blood? Is that who you are? You know, we like to say, oh, this is me. The whole thing is me. But the Buddha was a deconstructionist way back. <laughs> it's true. He deconstructed reality in order to see more clearly. And so he would deconstruct the parts of things to see, well, what's, what is it really? Are you the hair on your head? Is this who you are? For some of us, if that's who we are, we're going to be gone very soon. <laughs> right. You know? Are we our teeth? Those bones that crush animals and vegetables, destroying them so that we can survive? Are we our eardrums? Buddha talked about what well, he, he actually never said in the text. It's nowhere that I have been able to find him saying there's no self. What he did do was ask people to look very closely and see what are you identifying as self. And then he would challenge them basically and say, is this yourself?" Is the skin, or the blood, or the muscle, or the flesh, or the tissue, or the bones, or the marrow, or the liquids, the fluids, the urine, the blood, the feces. Whatever here in the body, because it's all here, is that yourself. This is one very simple deconstructionist meditation practice. And that he would then have people go through the parts of the body systematically. As you might go on a, a retreat for 10 days or a month and just focus on that. And, and it's a very powerful practice where all of a sudden you see you're not any of that. There's something here, but it's not permanent and concretized in the way we generally conceptualize our self. So the three marks are understood through the mark of impermanence. And again, I thought it'd be really appropriate to speak a little tonight about impermanence given the change. Excuse me, and also given given how important impermanence is in Buddhism. It's said that if we if we truly understood the truth of impermanence, we would be free. we deeply understood the truth of impermanence we would be free we understand it somewhat we do everybody here agreed we all know that things change but do we live as if everything is always changing do we see through the eyes of impermanence or do we see through the eyes of permanence do we see through the eyes of of, of transiency or do we see through the eyes of concrete, reified reality? And there's a, a, a beautiful razor's edge here, really, because a certain amount of our life is lived based on some conventional agreements, right? I said I would be here tonight. Right? We could say, oh, well, it, I changed my mind, it's, everything's impermanent, so I didn't, I'm not coming tonight. And you could all show up, right? That, that, that would be um, a misunderstanding of what we're talking about. It would be a kind of immature understanding of what we're talking about. What we're talking about is how to live our lives, engage our lives very fully, but, uh, but not lose sight of the truth to fulfill our responsibilities quite fully, but not lose sight of the truth of impermanence. And then to see how that truth impacts our fulfilling of our responsibilities, of our commitments, of our passions, of our loves, of our relationships. How is it when we see our partners or our friends or our children or our parents, whoever it is, As if they're permanent. As if they're always going to be there. Or they're always like that. When we fixate reality. And this is really a little closer to the... We're getting a little closer to the essence now. Because when we see through the eyes of impermanence, we're not fixating reality. We're not fixating this moment. We're not holding someone or something to some idea from the past that we're then saying, this is what reality is. No, we're actually open to the reality that's fresh and immediate and always now. And again, I've mentioned this many, many times, but I think it's such a good meditation practice that often when my daughter was growing up, we would sit and do a little meditation and and i would have to see she would have to see that i'm not her dad and i would have to see that she's not my daughter and we would just look at each other for maybe a minute and it was it's a beautiful meditation practice to do with anybody you're close with to actually see they're not the role that we fixate them in even though they're in that role and the role's appropriate to fulfill the role But just in those moments, at least for my daughter and myself, the roles would break. The trance of permanence would break. And then we would be able to see, oh, there is somebody here who, not only is this girl, woman, my daughter, but she is something unfathomable, mysterious, unknowable. And the beauty of that. And and I have to say, um, even though, especially when my daughter was younger, she didn't so much like it. We would do it for about 30 seconds. She'd say, okay, that's enough. It was like, it was a little weird, you know, it's your dad and all of a sudden you, all of a sudden she would see that I'm not just her dad, that there was something beyond that role. And so it would be a little weird, but she loved, loved when I saw her as not my daughter. Something beyond that, when, when I could see her beyond that. And we all love that. We love it when we're seen not as some idea, not as some fixed reality, but in the living presence that we are, in the living, changing, mysterious, magical presence that is alive temporarily and here now. One of the first insights in insight meditation is impermanence. If you sit and pay attention to your experience, it's always changing. And sometimes it's shocking for people. Sometimes it's, it's really new to see how, how unsolid reality is part of the maturation of insight meditation is to allow that sense that understanding the reality of impermanence to sink into us and then they would say let it let it sink into your bones and the, mer- the marrow of your bones to really be, to begin to open our eyes so that our eyes see clearly now not Not, we're not so that we don't see through the filter of permanence of our habit and our conditioning and our history and our ideas about reality that we can begin to see the freshness and aliveness that's here now, always now. And you know, one of the areas of impermanence that's often, um, well, let me say two things. One reason why we don't want to see impermanence is because it has a quality of suffering to it. Things we want to stay do not stay. It's, it's just true. You know, whatever our relationship is, our, our, our parents age and die, our families move in different directions, friendships, you know, beloved friendships change. Relationships children you know it's so such an honor to be a parent and then and that whole movement is literally just watching a person grow and change and leave and that's the whole trajectory of being a parent and it's beautiful and there's some suffering to it and so we turn away from them permanence but if we can turn towards it, we can turn towards it and let it begin to permeate us, let it begin to sink in, soak in, let ourselves start to live with the truth of impermanence, our lives can become rich in a way that we don't do with our minds. They become rich in the present moment. They become rich in the lived reality. And we can appreciate and love things very deeply even knowing that they will go and I had a I partly I wanted to talk tonight about this because um, as we moved here tonight and we came and we were scrambling to make it you know work and everything I, I just got a little glimpse of oh this won't last even this community which I think I've been I've been speaking at this community for 12 years now and watched it grow from, a few people in somebody's living room, right? And it's gotten bigger and bigger, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful community to be part of. But I also got, I just got a little bit of that flavor of oh Like it actually, you know, it'll be here for however long, but it won't be here forever. Something will change. Either it won't be here or I won't be here. Something will change. And I, I realized for myself one of the more poignant um places for me in terms of impermanence has been with worlds that I've been a part of, that I've loved very much, that have grown and blossomed and, and uh, matured and then died, basically. Because that's the nature of all things. And I was reflecting about when I was a young man I was doing... Radical, political street theater in New York. And it was it was a very vibrant time. It was the end of the 60s. And it was such a rich time and world and scene to be a part of. And I loved it very much. And I remember when the 70s came and things started to just... You, you could just feel it. There was no controlling it at all. But the whole scene started to just kind of scatter and lose its... Lose, whatever conditions had caused it to come together those conditions changed and it started to come apart. Or I, I was reflecting on a few of these. There was, um, there were, I was involved in the music scene in the what was called the free music scene for many, many years. And it was a beautiful grassroots scene and we, we had our own performing spaces and we played every night and it was, it was just beautiful and a great community and vibrant and alive and it came together and, People from all over somehow ended up in San Francisco and were playing at these little clubs and storefronts and garages. And I actually had a performing space in my house and would have performances once a week. And people showed up from Japan or New York and would do solo concerts and all kinds of things. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. And then things changed. And it doesn't exist anymore. There's some remnants, but it's gone in so many, many ways. And even Spirit Rock, which I've now been a part of for a long time, 20 years. It's it's so different than when I was first there. It's changed so much. And who knows what will happen? now there's this beautiful flourishing right now of the dharma in the west but who knows what'll happen we don't know the the intoxication with permanence says oh this is always going to be here this is great it's always here i'll always be able to come we even not consciously really unconsciously i'll always be able to come on sunday night but that's not true we don't know and the and, and the, the poignancy of it and really the beauty of opening to impermanence the truth of impermanence is that it can make this moment that much more richer that much more appreciating our life our actual life not some image and idea of permanent life but the temporality of life the evanescence of life the fragility and beauty Of life that presents itself, arises out of conditions, sustains for a while, and then when the conditions no longer support it, it dissolves, withers, dies, as is totally natural. It's totally natural. I'm not telling you anything unnatural or anything that's not always been happening. But our practice is to begin to realize, to come into alignment and harmony with the way things are. Because this movement towards harmony, towards alignment, towards realization, is the movement towards freedom. But it's really by coming into harmony with the truth, the Dharma, the truth of the way things are, that we will be free not by being intoxicated or believing in fantasy or following the untruth, but by literally opening and becoming, recognizing the way things are, the truth of impermanence. And I I see that partly I feel this talk and I feel the poignancy of this talk because I'm not going to be here for the next month. And it, it adds to it. It's like, you know, partly, you know, I know I'll be here, I'll see you in March, right? But who knows? Really? Really? We never know. And so I feel so appreciative to be here, so grateful to be here, happy to be here, and, and grateful for all the time we've spent together practicing as a community It's so good. It's so good. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.